previously in Breakthrough, we met Alan Murphy, a top executive of Mandel Industries. A poor quarterly report has the chairman of the board breathing down his neck. His nonstop travel schedule has caused some tension at home with his wife, Audrey. Murph's only mental reprieve is the time he spends tending to an aquarium filled with tropical fish and a bubbling scuba diver, who Murphy imagines is living a better life than he is. He's traveling today to a vital meeting with a client called Icon. Murphy is desperate to clinch a lucrative deal and save his company. A delayed flight and other mishaps at the airport have Murphy worrying that he might miss his meeting. When we last saw him, he was trying to reach his assistant. Finally, a call from Rita. Ah, good morning, Mr. Murphy. Oh, Rita, did you get my calls and my texts? Yes, sir, and I've checked other airlines. There's a big storm front and flights are being canceled everywhere. I tried the private service, but their phone went to voicemail. I'll see if we can push the meeting back a few hours. Okay, keep me posted. I'm gonna go to the ticket counter. Murphy scans the concourse and sees the line 20 people deep. Everyone's in the same predicament, but he hears a cheerful voice from his past. Well, look what the cat dragged in. Murph. Murph spins around to see the smiling face of his college roommate, Cal Jameson. The tall, striking man is tan and fit. His shoulder-length hair bleached blonde from the sun. His outfit is casual, but stylish, and he looks comfortable and successful, like a retired surfing champ. Cal, oh my gosh, wow. <laughs> it's so good to see you, Murph. It's been a while. Oh, too long. You know, I have searched for you online. I couldn't find you anywhere. Ah, I don't do social media. So let me look at you. Cal gives Murph a long look up and down. The sight of the bedraggled aging friend is disappointing. Cal quickly changes the subject. So, uh, how's Audrey? You're together, I assume? Oh, yeah, yeah, she's great. Uh, two awesome kids, Katie and Nick, we're good. Well then, how are you? You look a little, uh, stressed. Yeah, work stuff. I've got the most important meeting of the year in, oh, three and a half hours. Flight's delayed. Everything's backing up. My assistant's trying to find another flight. Well, then we got time for, to catch up. Breakfast? I'm buying. Ah, uh, I don't know. Earth takes another compulsive glance at his watch. You gotta eat. I'm not taking no for an answer. The two friends chat amiably over breakfast, reviewing details from the past few years. While Murph steadily climbed the corporate ladder, Cal was seeing the world. Rock climbing in Argentina, judo training in Japan, windsurfing in Morocco, and he's now working as a travel guide based in the Caribbean. The best friends have an easy banter, still comfortable after the long layoff. It's like no time has passed. Murph is having fun for the first time in a while. I'm going to say this with love, Murph. You packed on a few. <laughs> Do you ever work out anymore? I mean, no offense. Uh, offense taken? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I jogged a charity 5K last year. Does that count? 
What's with the hair, Fabio? No offense. <laughs> offense taken. <laughs> Seriously, Murph, not trying to be a jerk, but you've looked better. You're pale, your eyes are bloodshot. You've eaten an entire pack of Rolaids while we were sitting here. You sure this corporate gig is treating you all right? Well, sometimes I wonder. I got hired just as the business was taking off. Three promotions in five years. We acquired a bunch of companies, did an IPO. Before I knew it, I was in charge of the whole operation. It's not what I really pictured myself doing, but it all happened so fast. I know one thing. I'm good at it. But are you happy? Happy? I'm too busy to know. Is anybody really happy? I am. Well... Of course, you're Cal Jameson. <laughs> You've always been happy. Things come easy to you. Hey, I, I break a sweat from time to time. <laughs> Your life's like an action movie. Blue skies, ocean waves, exotic locations. You're like James Bond. Or Fabio. <laughs> You've got it good, okay? Most people can't live like that. Most people don't choose to live like that. Murph's phone chirps. A text from Rita says, meeting pushed back an hour. Left another voicemail with the private plane service, waiting to hear back. Uh, listen, Cal, it's been great catching up, but I need to figure out this flight thing, okay? If I don't make it to New York, I'm toast. I could fly you. What? Yeah, I've got my own plane. You can afford a plane? You said you were a travel guide. Well, more of like an adventure guide. Uh, my clients are corporate guys like you. Pay big bucks for me to take them to the mountains or deep sea diving or fishing. That kind of stuff. Just got back from Fiji. Taught the guy who invented Spotify how to wakeboard. <laughs> Odd guy. But uh, fast learner. Wait, wait, wait. But you have a plane? Oh, right. Yeah, it's, it's a Cessna. A uh, single-engine prop. Gets the job done. And, and we could leave, like, now? Sure. My schedule's flexible. She's stowed in the executive hangar, all fueled up and ready to go. Perfect. I'll text my assistant. I might make this meeting after all. <laughs> Road trip, just like back in college. <laughs> <laughs> You know, as we have uh, followed the journey of Cal and Murph, we've gotten to see kind of the pressures that we all face, the challenges we all face. But specifically today, you get to see a new dynamic because sometimes our old college friends can talk to us in a way that, like, our current friends can't. And you got two successful people, but one of which has hit all kinds of rungs and all kinds of success was kind of wondered, like, why didn't each one of these rungs bring happiness, bring joy? Why didn't it satisfy the way I hoped it would? Then you got a friend from the past who talks to him in a way that maybe most of our colleagues and current friends wouldn't to say, kind of, what happened to you? But more than that is offering, like, there might be a better way. There could be a different way to have success and joy. And you see the camaraderie in there, but you also kind of have some questions that come up, like, how does that look like? And, and that seems naive. Or maybe that was a one in a million that you got a chance to get Cal. Cal has access. Cal has wisdom. Cal's beginning to share a different way to live. 
which I think brings up a question we all have. Like, why is it that some of the things we set goals for, like sometimes two, five, even ten-year goals, things we dreamed about as a kid, jobs we dreamed about, why is it that that thing, when we finally get it, it is incredible, but then it doesn't, like, last as long as we thought it should? I planned this long to get that thing, and it only lasted this long. Whether that was the joy of getting on that team, winning that tournament, having your kids get onto that team or win that tournament, finishing that degree. A lot of work, and you got it, and you walked across the stage, and, and, and you got the, put on the tassel, or, or you got the Navy, uh, the Navy SEAL, or you got whatever, the Super Bowl ring, whatever it is in your world, and you went, this was awesome. But then the shine kind of comes off it much quicker than you thought. Oh, I always dreamed to have a second home, and you really enjoy that second home for about a year, and that's like, we're still enjoying it, but maybe we need something else. Well, underneath this sheet is the answer to all of life's questions. This is going to explain all of those questions and more. Why is it, how is it that psychologically we don't seem to be satisfied? Philosophically, why is it that each one of those rungs that was supposed to be the happiness factor, the now we can rest factor, now we can finally be balanced factor, why didn't that work? The answer to all of life's spiritual, psychological, and existential questions right here and right now. Wait for it. <laughs> the world is like fruit stripe gum. It is exhilarating for a moment, but it will not fully and finally satisfy. And if you've never had fruit stripe gum, you may never have it because they went out of business last year. But every time you would pull out a piece of fruit striped gum, the first thing that would strike you is the incredible color of the actual gum strip. And you would pop that in your mouth, and you've never had it before, you'd pop that in. Wow! It was a burst of exhilarating lemon, shocking orange, fantastic flavors. You're like, I have never in my life tasted anything this good, this quick, Unbelievable. It was gone. <laughs> Eight seconds. So then you went, well, okay, you know what? Try it again. So you go, well, maybe the other flavors last longer. So you'd reach in there. You'd say, hey, this, the yellow one looks good. And you pop that out. And you, okay, you pop it, and sure enough, whoa, exhilarating flavor. Amazing. Not quite as amazing as the first time, but amazing. This time it lasts six seconds. So you kind of chew on the corners, like, hey, it's a little guy I didn't get out right there. <laughs> you know what? I'll try two next time. So then you throw that away, and, and you grab two this time. Yeah, that was the problem. I didn't have enough. I just had enough of it. And, and you grab, sometimes you mix and match. And you're like, oh, I'll try the orange one, and I'll mix it in with the yellow one. Now this is going to be good. And you'd say, that was the problem. I didn't have enough quantity. Holy cow, unbelievable, this is delicious. This was exactly what, gone, gone, gone. How is it that it doesn't last long enough? That's what we're going to talk about today. 
This is this, the analogy and the answer to everything that we've ever experienced in dissatisfaction. It was amazing. It is good. It's not bad. But it just didn't last. We're going to have to understand two things. And the first thing is we need to understand that you and I have a craving. Not just a taste. A craving for the flavor of forever. There is something hardwired into you, and whether you're a spiritual person or religious person or not, it really doesn't matter because before you're successful, you can still imagine, yeah, 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 if I got that much money, if I had that much in my bank account, if I had that car, if I was married to him, I was married to her, if I had that degree, I really would be happy. But once you actually accomplish all those things, you kind of go, well, I enjoy them and they're good but I still crave more. And understanding that is I need to realize that something is hardwired into the human soul. And poets for years, philosophers for years, existentialists for years have wrestled with this and they've realized we have a craving in our soul for the flavor of forever. And if we don't understand that, we're not gonna be able to solve it. So last week I mentioned a leader named Paul, and we're going to pick back up on him today. And some of the ways he was teaching some merchants and business people in Corinth about time and about eternity. But before we get to him, I want to talk about another leader, the one that, that Terry wrote that song about, his journal that we know as the book of Ecclesiastes. This guy was a leader's leader, a king's king. He was a king of the nation of Israel, and he tried it all. He tried pleasure in every form. And when, when I say that, I mean he had 200 wives and 700 concubines. He tried it all. And he goes, you know what? I kept thinking a little bit more, a little bit different, a little bit kinkier, a little bit this, a little bit that. And pleasure was good, but it just didn't fully and finally satisfy. So he tried expanding the kingdom. He made the kingdom, uh, he with, made a deal with this kingdom. He made incredible deals. He, 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 he con consolidated his power. He was an incredible builder, built some of those amazing things. He made silver and gold so precious and so, uh, so plowing into the kingdom that it was as common as rocks was one of the idioms they would say. And out of that, he says, here's what I realized. I've got a craving for the flavor of forever. Here's how he says it in his journal. As all the rivers run into the sea, but you ever notice the sea is never full? <laughs> you go out to the Ohio River, I grew up in the Illinois River, you look at the Mississippi River, that thing is just going into the ocean all the time. Why is that ocean never full? He's like, that is exactly what my soul feels like. It doesn't matter how many flavors and how many tributaries and how many streams. It's just too big to be satisfied by things that aren't forever. He says, to the place with, from which the rivers come. All things you're going to do in life are going to be full of labor. You're going to have to work hard for everything. But I'm realizing that the eye is not satisfied with seeing and the ear is not filled with hearing. You can never see enough, you can never hear enough, you can never do enough. He's saying my soul has a taste, a craving for forever. And I thought if I could get enough quantity and quality of temporal things, I could satisfy. 
there was a scholar by the name of uh, C.S. Lewis. He was uh, going to Oxford at the time. He had a achieved all of his goals, he's teaching at Oxford, he's got fame, he's an atheist, and he begins to reflect on this same flavor of forever cravings in his own life. I should be happy. This is the resume that makes people happy. And here's how he writes about this in one of his books reflecting on his journal. Lewis says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. He says this example, a baby feels hunger and sure enough, there's such a thing as food. A duckling has a desire to swim, and sure enough, he discovers there's such a thing as water. Human beings have a desire for intimacy. They find there's such a thing as sex. He says, so why is it that we all have this craving that doesn't satisfy? He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, probably they were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it and suggest the real thing. Hmm. So Solomon's writing about this flavor forever, and he says, you know, I realized that I kept trying different ideas of finding something that's not forever and thinking something that was not forever could infuse the flavor of forever. Because the truth is, what I realized over time, having tried it all and done it all successfully, is that only forever flavor can infuse forever flavor, which makes sense. And here's how he says that toward the end of his journal in Ecclesiastes. I now see the God-given task of my life with which the sons of men are to be occupied. What should be focused on? What should I be prioritizing? He, God, forever the flavor of forever, the source of forever, has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything, even the temporal things, can be made beautiful in its time. But only forever can infuse that into the temporal. Then he says, for God has put eternity into our hearts. And it's his way of saying, I got a craving for forever. I've got this big hole of eternity that can only be satisfied not by more and more fruit-striped temporary things, but by the flavor of forever itself. Now, have you heard of a guy named uh, Blaise Pascal, but he, he invented the modern syringe. So if you ever gotten a shot, it's because of him. If you ever used a calculator, modern calculator, it's because of him. He was a philosopher. He was a mathematician. He was a teacher. And he became a follower of Jesus. And so he's talking to his colleagues and saying, hey, guys, um, you ought to at least check it out. And he kind of made famous something called Pascal's Wager, which says, hey, why don't you try it out? Because checking out God, there's high pros if you're right. And, and if you're uh, wrong about not believing in God, there's kind of a big downside if you're wrong. And he's basically saying we ought to pursue at least thinking about these flavor cravings we have for eternity. Now, I saw the Simpsons did a, a contrast to that. It was called Homer's Wager. And Homer says something like this. He says, suppose you spend your whole life, and suppose you've chosen the wrong God, and every time you go to church, you're making him madder and madder. In other words, you know what? Who knows who's the right God? Who knows which way to go? So just don't, just don't, better to keep every God neutral than to go to church to the wrong God and make the, the real God mad. Just don't even worry about it. Blaise Pascal's like, listen, 
we can't get away from this craving we have for the flavor forever. We got to pursue it. We got to chase it down. We got to figure it out. So here's how he writes about it. It sounds a lot like Lewis and a lot like King Solomon. Here's how he says it. What else does this craving and this helplessness to be happy proclaim except that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is an empty trace, an empty hole. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with another infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. See what he's saying? He's saying, if I have a flavor of forever whole in my life, I can spend my life trying to pack it full of temporal things. But temporal things can't fill an eternal hole. Instead, I need to find that hole infused with eternity itself. And then I let it flow through my work, flow through my relationships, flow through. And now work becomes not something that gives me my identity, but a place I express my identity. But I have to understand that what's been driving a lot of that dissatisfaction is I don't realize I have a, a craving for the flavor of forever. And no amount of fruit stripes, whatever version you have and whatever version I have, is going to fully and finally satisfy. But here's the good news. Once you understand that, he says temporal tastes can be infused with the flavor of forever. Understand that, that those temporary tastes we do have for joy, for peace, for security, for money, for success, those are good things. And they can be infused with that flavor forever. Here's how Solomon writes it in his journal. He says, that's what I discovered. Here's what I know. Here's what I concluded after I tried it all. I know that nothing is better for, for mankind than to rejoice, to enjoy what you have, to rejoice. Well, how do you do that? That's what we're trying to do. You do good in your lives. You say, God, what is your goodness? I want to take your goodness and flow it through my life. I'm infusing my everyday activity with your goodness. I would be so grateful for what I do have. I'm going to infuse what I do have with your gratitude and your joy and your peace. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy. See, if you still think a little bit more of something is going to make you happy, you're never enjoying what you have. You're always focused on what you might have next. Then he says, you can enjoy the good of your labor because you realize it's a gift of God. It's been infused with the flavor forever. I'll put it another way. I can enjoy a thing as a thing without it becoming something that it's not. I can enjoy my job, but it's not my identity. I can enjoy money, but it's not really my full security. I can enjoy my kids and I can enjoy my health. But all of these could be taken away from you. They will not fully and finally satisfy. So I enjoy the thing as a thing, but I don't make it into something that defines me, something that, that is my ultimate reality. I don't turn something temporal into something eternal. So I can enjoy it for what it is. I saw a guy recently and he had a sought after, like, 1% of a 1% of a 1% kind of career. And he said, Chad, I, I, I had this, I was incredibly grateful, incredibly joyful, and literally in a moment I lost it all. He said, I've heard you talk often that, you know, enjoy your job, but don't be defined by your job. I don't know how to do that. 
Like I was always known as the person who had this job. And now that I've lost it and I can't get it back, and it's been years I've been waiting, I don't know who I am. He goes, I turned my job into my identity. He said, and it's during these last couple years I've been really learning that I can still want a job and I want to work and it's a gift and it's an opportunity God's given me and I've got skills, but I need to subordinate that job to something greater, who I am, who eternity, who the God of the universe cares about me and now I work as an expression of that. I'm learning that and I might have an opportunity coming after having learned that lesson for several years. So what do you think? Wouldn't it be great to enjoy the things we have? Every time people come back on mission trips, the first thing they say all the time is, why is it that they, these kids who are impoverished, seem to enjoy what they have more than I enjoy what I have? So we hear all the time. It's like they know something. It's like they're experiencing something. So now let's pick it back on Paul, who I mentioned last week, talking to a group of people in Corinth. Here's what he says. He says, guys, merchants, entrepreneurs, brethren, my friends, I want to I want to declare to you the gospel. Like, what's that mean? Well, the gospel literally means good news. But th- the gospel is the, is the main message of the entire Bible. So let me take a moment and explain it. The gospel says that there is an eternal God, right? The forever God is out there. But he wasn't just out there for us to hope for and, and wish for and maybe one day I'll find him. The God of forever infused himself into reality. God came to earth through the person of Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. Now, you may have heard that a hundred times, so it doesn't strike you. Let me tell you why it was so striking in history. The primary view in those days was called Greek Gnosticism. And the Greeks taught, from Plato to Aristotle, that matter was bad and spirit was good. So they were big on philosophy, they were big on the arts, but they weren't big fans of merchants. Merchants were kind of like you're using your body to create a craft. Matter was inherently evil or neutral at best. So that downplayed entrepreneurs, it downplayed a business and, and, and the things you do with your body. And so Christianity shows up and says, no, 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 no. The God of the universe came into matter because matter matters. Your body matters. What you do in this life matters. Your business matters. This was a revolutionary idea that transforms the world in just esteeming work And saying that now God cares about everything you do. You don't just work on Sunday. You don't just glorify God when you pray. Every single day and every single second matter can matter. And what really matters, what you're really craving came into matter. So that you can be filled up with that. Forgiven for what you've done wrong. And you can actually lead and infuse your life with thanksgiving with what matters. Further, the gospel said that we were once born in a world that mattered. It's kind of what, what Pascal was getting at. It's like, it's like we once knew true happiness. And it's like we know there's a flavor of it. We just can't find it now. It says there once was a world that matters where we really could be satisfied. And there will be a world that matters when there's no more evil and no more pain. But we are stuck in between those two worlds. And we need to understand where our cravings came from. We are made for a world of forever. We need to understand in the future we're going to live back in that world of forever. And in the meantime... We can only be satisfied by the flavor of forever. That's what the gospel is. So then he goes on to explain. Let me tell you why we can know. Not wish, not hope, but why we can know this is true. Because we saw 
forever infused into matter ourselves. I'm delivering to you first what I received. I saw this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Lots of hundred-year-old predictions came true. He was buried. There's people living today who saw him buried. And then he rose again. He took matter, a dead body, and he infused eternity into it, and he brought it back to life. And don't just ask me. There's hundreds and thousands of people living right now while I'm writing this letter you can go talk to, is what he's saying. And he goes on. He rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and he was seen. Not people believed it. People saw it. He was seen. By who? By Peter? Oh, well, he already believed in it. By 12 people at once? Well, they were kind of, you know, on board. Well, not Thomas. But one time he was seen by over 500 people at one time. Well, that doesn't sound like a group delusion. 500 people? Go talk to all 500 of me, saying. We're telling you, we have seen how the flavor of forever can be infused in reality. And because of that, we want to live toward that. It's no longer just a wish or a hope or maybe it's a reality. Now, all through our culture, you see people who've discovered this. One of the most famous ones, right from the 1970s to 2000s, was a British philosopher. And if you don't know his name, very, very famous, Anthony Flew. He, from the 1970s, said Christianity is unattainable. Believing in God is unattainable for several reasons. Number one, the universe is eternal. We don't need God to have started and began it. And he lectured for hours on this. Number two. The idea of God as the uncaused cause is inherently contradictory because, you know, if there's a God, then he would need a beginning, and God doesn't have a beginning, therefore it's just contradictory. Third thing he argued, the problem of evil is so insurmountable, a good God could not exist with an evil creation. So, this guy's no slouch. Hundreds of hours on the internet you can find of him. But in the 2000s, he began to dig deeper into his flavor of forever. He had all this success, all this lecturing, but he was not satisfied. He should be satisfied in a world that evolved him to be satisfied. And he began to listen to the arguments that there might be a good God, that there might be eternity, to trace his cravings back to this, this like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find a flavor I can't find in this world. And he stepped over the line and became a deist, living in God based on the evidence. As he kept searching... As he kept questioning, he began to eventually become and declare himself a follower of Jesus to the shock of the world based on the evidence. And he found that forever could be infused into his life, his intellect, and his mind. His journey reminds me of another scientist who worked for NASA and he wrote a lot. He had several famous books in America. He likens the journey of science and reason to climbing a mountain. Do you remember that mountain I showed you last week from Corinth? Here's his quote. For the scientist who's lived by his faith and the power of reason, he's scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over that final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there the whole time for centuries. And what Robert found and what the other philosopher found is that science now tells us that our universe is not eternal. It had a beginning. If it had a beginning, it need to have a beginner. 
And even if you crush the whole universe down to a very small period, as, as we're taught, it does not explain where that matter came from. It does not explain where the, the, the laws come from that are going to make that expand. It doesn't ex ex explain the energy that's going to be required to make it expand. It doesn't explain why there's inertia and why there is gravity and why there's centrifugal force. And so scientists were saying, we thought the universe was eternal. It's not. And as we're clawing our way up through reason, we're finding... But theologians have been saying the whole time, there was a God who made this world and he made us to need him. So what does that mean for us? You can keep chewing. You can wear yourself out and wear your family out <laughs> and keep chewing. Think if you just get a few more pieces, if I get maybe a couple at a time. But we need to realize if we're going to have a breakthrough. We need to realize that our taste... Our taste for that flavor of forever, it's not going to be satisfied by either a quality or a quantity of temporary taste. Otherwise, we're just, we're the proverbial donkey chasing that carrot. We just, just one more time, it'll be different this time. What does it look like for you and I to realize that no quantity and no quality of temporary tastes were fully and finally satisfied? If you saw the interview with uh, Brock Purdy, known as Mr. Irrelevant, right? Because he was the last one who was uh, drafted. But I was amazed to see on several podcasts, he said, you know, I want to win. I want to compete. I want to do well. I'm sure he was equally disappointed, right, at the loss. But what he said, he said, you know what I've realized in my life? What motivates me to want to win but not be defined by winning makes me want to compete but not be defined by my competition. And he gave this speech that sounds just like what Paul said. Jesus Christ died. He says, he was buried. He died for my sins. He rose from the dead. And now by believing in him, Jesus is seated. This is his words, not mine. See at the right hand of God. And he now lets me be adopted in that family. So my identity is to be co-reigning with Jesus. And I get to play football. So I get to express my identity and express my love and express my competition through the things I love doing, but I'm defined by something not just better, something far, far, far better. So a few times I've heard uh, an NFL player talk about the ascension of Jesus at the right hand of God. But he said that's what motivates him as a football player to find joy in the midst of winning and losing. It's what C.S. Lewis said. Let me come back to the second part of the quote I mentioned earlier. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. Earthly pleasures were meant to suggest the real thing. Now, now if that's so, they were to point us to that flavor forever. If that's so, I must take care never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. On the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a copy or an echo or a mirage of. Is what... What Solomon was saying, enjoy what you have, enjoy the things as things, but don't mistaken them for something they're not, my identity. He goes on, I must keep alive in myself my true country, my true home, which I will not find until after death. I was made for another world. I must never let it, that craving, that desire, that understanding get snowed under or turned aside. I want to invite the band to come out. And I love what he said there. We need to realize our true home. 
We were built for a forever home. Our souls were built for forever tastes. So, as I have over the years, thoroughly enjoy fruit stripe gum. Whether it comes in the form of a car, or a plane, or a house, or a career. But as you're looking at it, don't mistake fruit stripe gum for your identity, for your ultimate purpose. Don't think that if I spend a little bit more time, or just one more week, or one more year, or one more decade, that somehow this exhilarating burst of flavor, no doubt, is ever going to fully and finally satisfy. But instead, as Lewis says, constantly enjoy what you have while remembering your true home.